So what I mean by no confusion <laughs> is that in the course of preaching about sex and talking about how wonderful this gift God has given us is, uh, I do not want to suggest in any way that it is wonderful to be celebrated and enjoyed outside of the bounds which God has established for it, namely the confines of a committed heterosexual marriage. And uh, I want to make it uh, abundantly clear that we're not suggesting anything other than that. Uh, in the past, we've gone into that in detail, but we will not do that in this series. Now, uh, fifth, no nonsense. This is real stuff, and the world we live in is the real world. I'm not going to be candy-coating any of this stuff, and I would appreciate uh, there being no expectation that uh, either Joe or I would. So, any questions about our ground rules? Very well, we have another video. If you want to find that for yourself, uh, just uh, go on YouTube and search on Honest R&B Video. <clears throat> so why, why on earth do people keep singing about making love all night long? You ever wonder that? I mean, all these songs, it's, it's all night long, right? Why? Apart possibly from your honeymoon, you won't go through a week of your life when you spend more time having sex than you do eating. So why do we talk so much and think so much about this activity which is really only taking up a very, very, in some cases, very small portion of our lives? Well, among other reasons that we will be discussing throughout the course of this series, among the fact that there's spiritual connection involved, that there are 
larger, tapping into larger forces, cosmic forces. One reason is that it feels good, or it should. It feels really good. And the people who are talking in the Song of Songs here have absolutely no shame in talking about how good it feels when they're with each other. If you look at chapter 2 of Song of Songs, verse 3, the, the woman in the, in the song says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall. Let his banner over me be love. You ever had the cute little kids sing that one? He led me to his banqueting table. His banner over me. You ever? Yeah? Uh, His banner over me is love. Could also be translated. His intention is to get me into bed and rock me all night long. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, one of the commentators says, as if that would help. For I am faint with love. And if you have one of the older translations that says, I am sick of love, that doesn't mean that. I am sick with love, I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me in a singularly unchaste fashion. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Which might mean that, and it also might be translated, don't wake us up or otherwise disturb us until we're done. And in chapter 4, the man in the song says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. This was apparently a compliment. Your teeth like a flock of sheep newly shorn coming up from the washing. Each one has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Which in the days before orthodontia was probably not all that common. Your lips like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely, your temples behind your veil like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There's no flaw in you. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Descend from the crest of Amana, from the top of Sinir, the summit of Hermon, from the lion's dens and the mountain haunts of leopards. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, one jewel from your necklace. Oh, how delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine. The fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Is it getting hot up here? Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, my bride. Milk and honey are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. 
Your garden locked up, my sister, my bride. Your spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna, nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, every kind of incense tree, myrrh and aloes and all the finest spices. You are a garden fountain, a well of flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And her response to this is not settle down, roll over. She says, awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread abroad. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. And he responds, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And the chorus responds, eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. There's no sense part of the people in this song that they really should be attending to more important spiritual matters. That they should be contemplating the secret mysteries of the Trinity rather than copulating. There's no sense that this delight they take in their union is somehow less than the dignity of their human condition. No sense that they really have better things to do. This feels good and they love to do it with each other. The fact that sex feels so good has gotten lots of people over the ages very concerned about it. As I discussed last week, the rabbis believed that the Song of Songs had to be read as an allegory that it really wasn't about these two people making love, that really what it was about was about the love between God and Israel. In fact, they said that the very necessity of an allegory to convey the lofty concepts of the Song of Songs is proof of its elevated nature. Only the most ignorant could read this, not as an allegory, but as an actual poem about actual people doing the actual thing they're doing. Their their understanding of this is having been written by Solomon, they said, is a testimony to just how spiritual Solomon was. Solomon, as you recall, had a thousand wives. He says in Ecclesiastes, whatever his eyes saw and and he desired, he possessed. He was able to have everything he ever wanted. And the The rabbi said that actually Solomon was a man who was able to descend to the murky depths of physical indulgence and remain complete, untouched, and unsullied. He wasn't a profane person writing a holy work. He was a man who was intensely holy, not through abstinence from lust, an obsession of pleasure. In fact, the fact that he achieved this holiness while living the life that he led of complete luxury and indulgence, was an eloquent testimony to the sort of human being that he was. To which I'd say, (laughs) right. No, I don't think so. The church's tradition, 
has done much the same thing. Origen, the great biblical scholar of the third century, said that it may well be the case that should they approach these texts, people who are not sufficiently mature, maybe they wouldn't get anything from them, maybe they wouldn't be much harmed by them, but if a man who is a mere fleshling should approach them, for such a one there would arise no little risk and danger. Anyone who doesn't know how to listen to the language of erotic desire with chaste ears and a pure mind will pervert what he hears and be turned from the inner self to the outward, from the spirit to the flesh. He'll foster carnal desires within himself. will appear to be the case that he's roused and encouraged to carnal lust by the scriptures. Now, in Origen's defense, this was a man who took his Bible very seriously. Not only did he develop what is known as the Hexapla, a study Bible for himself that had in six different columns the various editions of Scripture that were available to him at the time. He's also somebody who took very seriously Jesus' command that if anything is keeping you from holiness, that you should cut it off. He did, in fact, castrate himself, although he later on came to realize that was perhaps not the proper application of his exegesis. But Gregory of Nyssa said much the same thing in the 4th century. He said, Human nature can neither discover nor entertain anything greater for the purpose of understanding. That's why the most intense of pleasurable activities, by which I mean the passion of erotic love, is set as a figure at the very fore of the guidance that the teachings give, so that, Gregory said, we're reading all about this erotic pleasure, so that we may learn that it is necessary for the soul, fixing itself steadily on the inaccessible beauty of the divine nature, to love that nature as much as the body has a bent for what is akin to it, to turn passion into impassibility, that is, the absence of any passion so that when every bodily disposition has been quelled, our mind within us may boil with love, but only in the spirit, because it's heated by that fire which the Lord came to cast upon the earth. In other words, Gregory says, all this love, all this passion, all this intense sex in the Song of Songs is all just pointing us to something else, and we're not supposed to really read it as being about love and sex and passion, and desire, and erotic pleasure. And we should note that some of this concern was not just with the pleasure of sex. Really, it was concerned with pleasure generally. There is, and I want to recognize the nobility of the ascetic tradition in our, our heritage. There are people who are called to take vows of chastity, vows of poverty, there were monks who believed that God was calling them, and he may well have been, calling them to go off and to live solitary lives devoted simply to prayer. And again, for those people who are called to that, it probably is good to read the Song of Songs as an allegory. And for people who are called to that, you do have to interact with the pleasurable things of this world in a different way if you are one of the people who is called to that peculiar kind of existence. But that isn't for most of us. 
Most of us, I think, are not called to that kind of existence any more than we're called to the existence of an Olympic athlete. I mean, if you... Michael Phelps' diet, you ever read this? For breakfast, Michael Phelps has three fried egg sandwiches loaded with cheese, lettuce, tomatoes, fried onions, and mayonnaise. He has two cups of coffee. He has a five-egg omelet. He has a bowl of grits, three slices of French toast topped with powdered sugar, and three chocolate chip pancakes. That's just breakfast. He doesn't choose among those. That He eats all of that. For lunch, he has a pound of enriched pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches with mayonnaise and white bread, and energy drinks that pack a 1,000 calories for dinner, a pound of pasta, an entire pizza, and some more energy drinks. I don't think even I could do that. <clears throat> Certainly, I'm not called to undertake any aspect of Michael Phelps' training regimen, even the easy one like what he eats. I'm not an Olympic athlete. Those of us who are not the kind of spiritual athletes that are trying to live an extraordinary and unusual calling to an ascetic, self-denying existence need to recognize that God has given us the good things of this world to enjoy and delight in within the proper bounds that he's given us. Now, some folks have said, okay, fine. You can enjoy other stuff. You can enjoy food that tastes good. You can enjoy the beauty of the world. But but the sex stuff is, we're, we're still not sure about this. I mean, but by, by 200 A.D., <clears throat> this is what church authorities had, had decreed that uh, uh, believers couldn't have sex on Thursdays because that's the day that Jesus was arrested, couldn't have sex on Fridays because that's the day he died, or on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sunday in honor of the departed saints. Wednesdays would often make the list as long as, as well as the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also the feast days, the days of the apostles, and the days of female impurity, basically leaving you only 44 days a year on which you could actually have sex if you're married. And during the Victorian era, you had this kind of advice being given by mature and supposedly holy and spiritual older women. This was a pastor's wife writing to a young woman about her wedding night. To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, just right there, I just want to run screaming. To the sensitive young woman who has had the benefits of proper upbringing, the wedding day is ironically both the happiest and most terrifying day of her life. On the positive side, there is the wedding itself. On the negative side, there is the wedding night, during which the bride must pay the piper, so to speak, by facing for the first time the terrible experience of sex. At this point, let me concede one shocking truth. Some young women actually anticipate the wedding night ordeal with curiosity and pleasure. Beware such an attitude. One cardinal rule of marriage should never be forgotten. Give little, give seldom, and above all, give grudgingly. Otherwise, what could have been a proper marriage could become an orgy of sexual lust. <clears throat> this, uh, this advice was given to a groom around that time. Thousands of married men and women are suffering from the effects of excessive sexual indulgence. They drain their physical powers, weaken the intellect, and fail to attain the happiness and grand results which would otherwise be possible to them. 
It might be said that no man of average health, physical power, and intellectual acumen can exceed the bounds of once a week without at least being in danger of having entered upon a life of excess for both himself and his wife. Marital moderation is most easily secured and maintained where married persons occupy separate beds. Sleeping in the same bed is the most ingenious of all possible devices to stimulate and inflame carnal passion. Often the best arrangement is to occupy separate rooms because then you can escape the sexual excitement which comes daily by the twice-repeated exposure of undressing and dressing in each other's presence. Again, this, for the people who are delivering this advice, this was good, sound Christian wisdom. But if all pleasure but sexual pleasure is derided, is, is acceptable, and sexual pleasure is derided, then you're missing something about the world that God has given us. You're missing something about His good creation, about the things He's given us that please us in the right ways. The best way I can think of to illustrate this is by this audio clip. I, I was uh, grateful to receive from many people some gift certificates that enabled me to purchase the immersion box set of Pink Floyd's classic 1972 album, Dark Side of the Moon. The immersion box set has included not only the beautiful 5.1 surround remaster, it has all sorts of little goodies in there, but it has some of the earlier versions of the songs that became the album that I probably have listened to more than any other single album in my entire life. So if you can play the first clip, this is from the uh, coming in the middle of a song that uh, was known as The Great Gig in the Sky. And uh, we'll have that up in just a moment here. There you go. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody remember this? Yeah? Uh-huh. Now you can keep playing it. Sounds lovely, doesn't it? Just the piano and the bass. Yeah. It's kind of boring, isn't it? Because it's missing something. Will you please play the other clip? That This was an early version. Now, what ultimately came out on the album was this.
a little different, isn't it? The song was originally conceived as being about death. The French call orgasm le petit mort, the little death. It's a completely different thing without Claire Torrey's vocals. Once you've heard it with them, you can't imagine appreciating it without them. The fact is, it does not make sense to celebrate some types of sensuality that God has given us and not the others. To celebrate the taste of fresh strawberries or the sound of a great orchestra, the scent of a rose like the lovely one Mary captured in the picture on your bulletin, the sight of a sunrise or the feel of a baby's skin, without also celebrating the taste of a lover's kiss, the sound of her voice, the scent even of her clothing, the sight of her beauty, the feel of her skin. Again, all within the proper bounds. But God has given us both sense and sensuality. We read in Paul's letter to Timothy, the first one, chapter 4, He says, you know, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Well, these kind of teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry. They order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. See, everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the Word of God and prayer. We can receive these good gifts of God in an unworthy manner. We certainly can enjoy the pleasures of the things He's given us in ways that are outside the bounds He's established. Most of us, I think, will not be in a position where we should enjoy food the way Michael Phelps does at his training table. And there certainly are ways to experience sexual pleasure outside of the bounds that God has established. But the fact that that happens doesn't mean that we're not supposed to enjoy them within the bounds that he's established. One of my mentors taught me that the temptation for us when it comes to the things that God gives us that we can enjoy, the temptation is always either to defy or to deify them, to make them as though they're nothing or to pretend that they don't exist or to avoid them, or to make gods out of them, to devote ourselves to them entirely. What we're called to do is to receive them as gifts of God and, yes, as ways in which we can draw closer to God by receiving with gratitude what He has given us. And this is true of the other pleasures and it most certainly is true of sexual pleasure as well. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that it's often difficult for us 
to receive what you have given us within the bounds that you've given it to us. But we also recognize that the answer to that is not to ignore those pleasures, but rather to enjoy them within the bounds that you've set. Pray, Lord, that our marriages in this congregation would be places where sexual pleasure is known and enjoyed, received with gratitude as your good gift. We pray that however much actual time is spent in that pursuit, that it would be holy that it would be consecrated because it is received with thanksgiving and it is enjoyed according to the word of God and prayer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.